This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. This program is supported by the Calliopeia Foundation. Calliopeia honors all life as sacred and works to heal global issues at their root causes. The projects they support hold a common vision for a future built on love, reverence, and responsibility for our shared home. Their visionary generosity brings impactful projects to life. Hey for the Wild community, Ayana here. I'd like to thank the city of Bend, Oregon for generously supporting our work as storytellers. I love the experience of watching the seasons transform the landscape under a blanket of fresh snow. It's a magical time to slow down, give thanks, and reconnect with the land. Bend offers amazing winter activities like snowshoeing in the crisp air of the magnificent Three Sisters Mountains, which have been shaped by ancient volcanic and glacial activity. As we tune into this winter's energy, we're thinking about the opportunity to refresh our spirits with responsible and safe adventures. Bend, Oregon is a member of Pledge for the Wild, a group of mountain towns helping those who are passionate about nature to give back to local nonprofits that care for these beautiful places. If you plan to visit Bend, we encourage you to support local businesses and give back at pledgewildbend.com. That's pledgewildbend.com. Welcome to For the Wild Podcast, In the Field Edition. I'm Ayana Young. In the Field is a new bioregional, place-based storytelling series that For the Wild has been co-creating for the past four years. Recorded on the road, in living rooms, on the river, and around kitchen tables, In the Field features intimate conversations with land defenders whose voices spring from deeply rooted knowledge and commitment. It's been thrilling to see last week's pilot episode making waves across the interwebs, and we encourage everyone to listen and share it if you haven't done so. It features Wanda Kashudaha Kulp, the Clinket matriarch from the village of Huna in so-called Southeast Alaska, who shared with the world her powerful testimony for the Tongass National Forest, the unceded territory of the Clinket, Haida, and Shimshian peoples. Today, we pick up the conversation with Wanda's dear friend and longtime partner in justice, Kasayage. The Tongass, which holds most of the ancient temperate rainforest remaining in the world, currently faces the most dangerous attack in recent history, as the state of Alaska 
and National Forest Service attempt to revoke protections on 9.2 million acres of unparalleled splendor, pandering to the gasps of a dying logging industry. We hope their stories make the forest come alive for you, as they have for me, and move you to stand up for one of the most precious living libraries left on this earth. Please visit our website at forthewild.world to make a public comment today and add your voice to keep roadless rural protections in place. Now let's begin. Hi, hello. Thanks much. We have one more. Thank you so much for having us over. Kasayaga is a respected Clinket knowledge keeper, a mother and grandmother, a spruce root basket weaver, and a fierce protector of her community and village of Huna. In the 1980s, Kasayage brought a lawsuit against the National Forest Service for logging in Huna, and since then has continued to stand with unwavering integrity and courageously speak truth to power. Wanda had sung Kasayage's praises years prior, but it wasn't until last year, 2018, that we finally got to meet. After a string of emails back and forth and misconnections, Kasayake and I happened to unknowingly ferry to Juno on the exact same day. The next morning, Molly, March, and I hopped in the car and drove to her son's home, where we sat around the kitchen table enwrapped with the conversation that you'll hear today. Oh, wow, what a garden. Wow, are you kidding? There's not all that space. Because of the Okay. Do you want to sit on the couch or the chair? I think I'm going to sit over here so I can look out the window. Okay, great. Would you want to wear a lapel? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. And if you just have a, a pocket or a place to put oh, that. technology. Oh, I know, huh? <laughs> Oops, what did I do? Okay, well, I heard you talking about the salmon. I'll introduce myself. My name is Kasaya Geth. I am raven, you know, there's either raven or eagle in our clan, that's the main breakdown. So I'm raven, when the family breaks down a little bit more, I am a dog salmon, and the family breaks down a little bit more, and I'm, and I'm a crow. So, to let you know that we have that connection, the salmon connection as well, and I think absorbing our clans from the land. Every clan that we have is from the land, or the ocean, or the air. And our names have meaning from the land, if you really want to learn. I mean, I don't know if, even if we really want to learn who we are, the connection is always to the land, the air, the water. So. I appreciate people like you that come around because we feel like we fought a battle. You win the battle, you lose the war. <laughs> it 
it was part of, um, I'm sorry, I'm emotional. <laughs> Hanlon versus Barton. I'm Ernestine Hanlon Abel. My uncle Eli Hanlon was part of it too. And the whole approach was to make sure our grandchildren continue to have our way of life. I don't like the word subsistence because our way of life is not at all in any subcategory. We live, we have only the best. Look at our food. Look at our land. So wealthy, but we're so poor. Though I'm not of the land that is now called the Tongass, I know that my people are also of a place that is cold, cloud-covered, and that once knew salmon. Across the reaches of time and space and culture, we connected to each other's boundless love for the forest, as daughters, sisters, and nieces of these great beings and beyond human lineages. Bobbing between memory, story, admonition, and plea, Kasaige has so viscerally brought to life the history of the Tongass, the monstrosity of resource extraction, and the beauty and sustenance of this moss-cloaked landscape. I ask that you listen to these offerings with a reverential imagination, care, and curiosity for the landscapes that lie between her words. When we brought a fish home, we didn't eat the fish that day. The law says you let the spirit go back. And you tell the spirit that we're going to feed my family. And the fish is better anyway the next day. And same with the deer. When my dad would go hunting, they'd take the, the head and they'd turn it to where the sun would set and they'd tell the deer, go ahead and watch the sunset and we're going to take you home and feed my family. So there was a lot of reverence. It was paying attention to the spirit world, like being able to go out to the tree, being able to go out to the glacier, and when they have something to say to you, you could hear it, you could receive it. Um, there's a lot of things going on in the world and I feel very sheltered. I feel like I'm secure in the arm of our ancestors. Huna means protection from the north wind, but I feel protected in many ways. But as we sit here feel protected, there's a lot of things going on with our forest. There's a lot of things going on with the water, the cruise ships, and the glaciers melting. It, it's making significant differences in our lives. This is the hottest summer. Mm -hmm. 
we've had ever. Uh-huh. It's alarming. Yeah. It should be alarming. The, I guess what keeps coming to my mind right now is we're the canaries. Hmm. What, what they call them, you know, the mining canaries. The can- canary and the coal yeah, mine. Yeah, the coal, and we're the canaries. We could speak for the animals. They need a voice. But we've been made voiceless just like the way the animals have been made voiceless. People like you, that's going to make it work. We're being heard. The deer, the mountain goat's going to be heard. Thank you. I use mountain goats for my weaving. Mountain goats come down in the springtime to get their salt because it was predictable to see them come down the mountains. Oh, it's time for them to get their salt. My dad fished up in Glacier Bay. That was his fishing area. And he said as cruise ships got more numbers up into Glacier Bay, the mountain goats stopped coming down because they set a certain haze of um, smog on the mountains and the mountain Goats would not go past that smog, they'd stay up. And finally decided to come through the smog and get the salt anyway. Would you mind sharing with us what it was like to grow up in Huna in your younger years there? Oh, sure. Growing up in Huna, there was only two cars in the whole village. One was an old... Um, Model T Ford that somebody brought in, <laughs> and the other one was an oil truck. The kids played most of their games on the street. All the men were fishermen. There was a crab cannery there, so the women worked there, and we spent a lot of time in the woods because that's what we had around us. The woods are the beach. The the summers were light, so, you know, we, we got our cue of what time to go home by just how hungry we were. And a lot of times, we could just go get food from the land. Berries and sprouts and different things. So we just put crackers in our pocket and go take off in the woods and be gone all day. Climbing trees. I feel real connected to the trees. I grew up with a really large family. I had seven siblings. My dad was a saner majority of his life. And then later on in his years, he became a power troller. But there was never a time that we were hungry. Our freezer was always full. If anybody felt a little ill, he'd go get a seal because the seal was so healthy and you'd feel better. We got tired of fish. we go, oh, fish again? Now I just love fish. It was definitely a village life. If somebody needed something, they were taken care of. The homeless situation that's so prevalent in the cities We still don't really see that in Huna. 
And like I said, you know, there was always the raven eagle that was all, we were all, always aware of who we are. And if you're a raven, if you help the eagle out, that would be, you know, that was, that was what you did. The law of the land. The law of the land, when you picked berries, you didn't eat it while you were picking, you wait until winter time. We picked a lot of berries. <laughs> Had encounters with bears. And there was no men around and no guns around and we talked to them in Quinket and my mom was praying. They left. So I really believe that there's a respectful way to deal with our wildlife. I keep coming back to that. <laughs> just a matter of respect. I'm wondering, like, when did you see things start to shift? What was the progression to growing up and then where it is now? When did you start to see a shift and what did that look like in your village of Huna? The biggest shift was with the logging. And there was a definite line between loggers and fishermen village and loggers and the attitude there was a definite I don't know how else to say it but there was a definite logger attitude that came in to the town a lot of disrespect for young ladies because they felt like they needed jobs they gave up fishing they gave up the way of life to make a nickel and that's what it is, because it was a boom and bust. So people stopped fishing and having their traditional connection to the land to make a nickel, and, and that really started to divide the community or shift the, the mm -hmm. way people related. Uh-huh. Because of the attitude that came with the loggers, a lot of the meetings, the 10-year meetings, you know, there was a definite divide and they had to continue with their belief system even though they saw the demise. It just fits corporate America. And so the smokehouses, we used to have a lot of smokehouses all over the place, fish smoking all over the place. There's only about two or three smokehouses that I see going now. So we aren't, now for the tourists, the um, people are willing to give up their whole summer to work for a few days when the tour ships are in town. And our people are the uh, last ones hired and the first ones fired for the nickel. Okay, so here we are in Juneau, Alaska. And uh, so you're on the, the Seaborn. Yes. And where have you traveled through? Well, Icy Strait Point Icy yesterday. Strait we Point went yesterday. into Huna. Okay, how was Huna? Quaint. Yeah. Different. Yeah, oh, quaint. yeah, it was. They just killed very, the grizzly. Very, very friendly people. Oh, wow. You know, the grizzlies are coming down because the streams are drying up, and so the salmon are not getting up to the mountains. And uh, so the bears are coming into the town. It was near the school. And there was a bear near the school and they killed it, you know, which was, you can understand, but it's still sad, you know. 
But the people were really friendly and they were really uh, nice and welcoming. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, the weather. I just can't understand that the weather's so beautiful. We were expecting it to be rain all the time. I know. I was expecting <laughs> so. white skies. Yeah. And drizzle. Yeah. And we haven't had it. Unfortunately, I've had a, uh, a terrible cold since I've been here. We've just is... done a wonderful trip now with the and, young uh, lady there to see the whales. Okay. Yeah, we saw quite a few whales, you know. Okay, and do they serve you salmon on the boat? Yes. Yeah, yes. There's, there's a choice there for some people. I haven't, I haven't, I haven't had it yet. Mm, farm salmon isn't good. It should be wild, really. But um, There's quite a selection of seafood on there, isn't there, with yeah. the caviar and the halibut and... Yeah, I had a halibut once, and um, the caviar, they just give you, like, a small little bit, you know. But I think that you, you can have it any time, I think. Mm-hmm. Like champagne, you know, you can have that any time you like. Mm-hmm. There's been a lot of seafood. Um, last night, I think they had four or five different preparations of salmon. And not including the smoked salmon on the thing, they had a big salted salmon. that was really pretty and very weird, but it was pretty, but I didn't eat it. In the 1950s, industrialized logging began in the Tongass and sparked four decades of high-intensity clear-cutting that resulted in an estimated loss of 70% of the massive trees along shorelines and streams, where wildlife overwinters. Logging destroys salmon habitat in several ways. Old-growth trees act as giant water towers, releasing moisture into the landscape in dry times and maintaining a moist microclimate within their canopies, where mosses, rotting wood, humus, and soil fungi act as a thick sponge that feeds the streams. The removal of these trees obliterates this ensemble, and the delicate strata of the forest floor are upended by heavy equipment. Logging roads carved into hillsides disrupt the flow of water on a landscape and cause salmon beds to fill with sediment, suffocating the juvenile salmon. Research currently underway is finding that the fungal populations of a watershed, which is mostly destroyed by logging, exudes a chemical signature that gives each stream a unique flavor, helping salmon navigate home. Many more dots are yet to be connected by science, but we know that salmon provide essential nutrients for virtually every aspect of life in these forests. Claiming to protect salmon habitat, Forest Service regulations require that loggers leave a minuscule 100-foot buffer along salmon streams, while vast stretches of the forest above are cleared away. The native corporations have no such requirements, so logging often plows straight across stream beds. Timber operations in Huna, in particular, picked up in the 80s, wiping out traditional hunting and foraging grounds and seeding deep social divisions within Kasayaga's community. Concerned about these changes on the land and in her village, Kasayage began to organize with others from the community to sue the Forest Service. One day, at a gathering at the local school cafeteria, Wanda overheard Kasayage speaking about the lawsuit. They began to chat, and then, as Wanda puts it, the rest was history. She was my partner. 
the whole time that we were doing the Hamlin versus Barton, those 10 years, and having to go to those meetings, we'd be carrying all those books around with us, having meetings. But it was me and Wanda, mm -hmm. and she had a typewriter before computer days. She'd be sitting there typing more letters. But yeah, we were, we, were the, we were a team. I liked working with her. I can't remember the year, but the Forest Service had started a log in around Tuna, and I brought it up as a concern because I was weaving and I was seeing these tremendous changes and these big plans and yellow, uh, red ribbons all over the place. In the Hanlon versus Barton case, Kasayage and other plaintiffs built their argument around the Alaska National Interest Lands Conservation Act, or ANILCA, a 1980 law that purported to uphold native rights to hunt and fish in Alaska. They argued that industrial logging and road development threatened the populations of Sitka black-tailed deer, and thus their traditional way of life and long-standing culture of harvesting wild foods. The courts, however, found the plaintiff's claim to be insufficient, and ultimately sided with the Forest Service. Legal strategies for conservation got a second wind when the roadless rule was passed in 2001, a law with significantly more teeth than Anilka. Considered one of the most successful conservation measures in history, roadless rule protected 58.5 million acres across the country from road construction and timber harvest. This federal rule, however, is once again on the chopping block, as vultures of industry circle the precious, still-humming ecosystems, flowing creeks, and talking trees that remain standing. Anelka, <laughs> for whatever it's worth, we tried to use Anelka, I believe, 802 for subsistence, and used like a deer model to show that our way of life is going to be truly endangered and irreparable. It took 10 years of my life. I didn't realize it was going to take that long. And that's the other thing is the Forest Service words are not meant for people like us. They're meant for people who have jobs and sit behind desks to <laughs> translate what they write. But it was easy enough to see the red, the red flags and start working through it. So you, you spent 10 years in a lawsuit with the Forest Service to say, stop logging, this is our livelihood, this is our connection. Protect. Protect this area, protect that area because of the deer, the fish, I mean, you know, and... Was it successful for you or did they end up not... No, subsistence uh, was put in the back burner. Uh, it was just put in the back burner because that's how the laws are. Apparently, it wasn't strong enough of a law. And so the strong law that they needed, they wanted to work with that they felt would have a grip was the roadless, addressing roadless. 
And so we all, the, I, I shouldn't say we because I don't admit to be part of the corporation. It's an entity. Anyway, they, they own a lot of land. And one of my concerns is because we are so small and so isolated and all this logging opened up this land, I believe there are Brennan tailings in Tahuna. Tailings being the waste from mines that contain heavy metals and toxic chemicals. I can't say for sure. I can't put my finger on it, but there is an extreme high rate of cancer just within our community. And there was this boat I live that I could watch come in. And it didn't deliver groceries. It didn't take anything away, but it would drive a truck off. And they would always do it in the middle of the night. I can't say for sure. But I, you know, if that's one thing that we could probably see um, what else is going on that we don't know about. We're the forgotten in the villages, we're the forgotten. And for example, when the money goes, the money is first taken out of the villages. When the money comes, we're the last ones to get it. So why would our kids want to come back? That's my biggest resource extraction that I want to point out. Our young people, they're not coming back home. They don't want to. Our houses are breaking down. We see our money go to the tourist. For the cruise ship, we got a $10 million dock. The cruise ship um, is given more and more permission to eliminate all their waste into our water. And, you know, that's besides that, that ugly disease that they put in the water, they also come real sick. They come personally sick and they're supposed to be quarantined. They even came with measles a few days ago. Our people never used to get sick in the summertime. We're having sick people. We have people with cancer. Our people are, I, I'm sure, already the average age of a Clinkett woman I've passed. But I'm almost certain it's lower with the cancer that's going on and the drugs that are available. Drugs aren't just in the city resource extraction. Our young people, they're doing a good job. I have a great-granddaughter. She's two years old. Her name is Ernestine. She makes me really happy and gives me reason to live. I don't see her very often, but I have a lot of hope for her. But at the same time, I want to I wanna bubble wrap her, you know? <laughs> Protect her teenage years. 
murdered an indigenous woman, missing woman, hardly addressed, but the pace is picking up. That's the resource extraction I'm thinking about at this point. Our young people, our young kids, my granddaughter, we need to have a safe place for them to come back. If they want to come back home, I don't think that's asking too much. When I first got in touch with Kasayage, she asked what I wanted to talk about, and I answered resource extraction. Before we began the interview, she reviewed an old receipt with notes scribbled in pencil and told me that she didn't know if she had anything to say on the subject. As she told her story, I realized that my desire to understand resource extraction in terms of logging and mining in Southeast Alaska was an all too small container to hold the complexity of what I was hearing. Extraction goes far beyond material industry. Extraction is an attempt at erasure, poisoning of deep cultural roots and places of belonging, forced abandonment of endemic languages, and erosion of pride across generations. And so how can we support the process of healing in these fleeting moments between us? Becoming conversant with the key components of the imperial history is a place to begin. One of the most pivotal and consequential events at the interface of settler-indigenous relations in Alaska was the passage of the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act, or ANCSA, in 1971, which we introduced in the previous episode with Wanda. In true colonial spirit, ANCSA, quote, extinguished Alaska Natives' rightful use of the whole of Alaska in exchange for one-tenth of that area, 44 million acres, plus a $962.5 million seed fund for a new system of Native corporations. Since Alaska doesn't recognize sovereign tribes, it imposed a corporate system on the supposed beneficiaries that requires the commodification and ongoing extraction of wealth on Native lands. While hailed as a generous civil rights concession by colonial governments, the elders we spoke with told a very different side of the story. ANCSA has had a detrimental effect on the landscape and social well-being of Indigenous societies across Alaska. ANSCA passed in 1971. I distinctly remember it. I was pregnant with my son. He was born three months too late, so he's called Afterborn. Oh, my God. <laughs> Isn't that disgusting? Anyway, one of the elders was talking in Clinkett, and my dad told me that he was saying that you know what they're doing? They're going to divide us. Now that money is going to be in the picture, beware. And what they were trying to say that they couldn't form into words. We've become a corporation. We are a tribe. And now we've become a corporation and it's not going to fit us and it has, and it's been the most ill-fitting thing that has ever been forced on us. There's definitely lines drawn. Corporations are entities. 
Corporations don't have souls. We already know that. This is corporate America. And they have a lot of leeway. While we were dealing with the Forest Service and how they were logging, they were criticizing us because Hunatotum Corporation and Sea Alaska Corporation were logging and the way they turned the corporation over to the tribe was they turned certain parts of the land and it was already designated as to be logged. Hunatotum was one of the first corporations to log. And the state of Alaska did not have any laws to protect us. And so when Sea Alaska and all the other native corporations did their logging, they had permission to log all the way down to the water. They had permission to log all the way down the creeks. So, you know, the laws all didn't get passed until the corporations had already done all their logging. So you look around Huna, everywhere you look is logged. And, yeah, they cut right down to the creeks. They cut right down to the water. And like the Forest Service is saying that they're working with the natives when they're actually working with the corporation. So I really believe that they're trying to put roads in because Sea Alaska just announced that they can't log because they can't access their logs. But if the Forest Service puts roads in, then they could access their logs. But it hasn't even come up for public discussion or public comments and they're already moving in all the road equipment their road building equipment in Huna. There's no logging companies because it's a relic anymore. A lot of the loggers got old and so they're gonna have to start a whole new crop of loggers. I mean, you know, there's no, no benefit, no profit. No. What was really nice to see was a protest about the roadless rule with SEAC uh, and WeCan. We were really encouraged because there was a lot of young people and a lot of young people involved. I do not have faith in the Forest Service. I do not have faith in the federal government. But I have faith. What is, is that thunder? That's so unusual. You and all these younger people, we haven't lost hope. Yeah, the world is in drastic change, but we're going someplace. We're going someplace. There's bad people out there. Yeah, granted there is. There always has been, hasn't there? <laughs> but as Maya Angelou says, I shall rise. The summer of 2019 broke all temperature records in Alaska, adding to the hardship of salmon in warming oceans and contracting streams. Embedded deep in these forests are a few select trees that contain traits that may allow them to survive a hotter world. And when they fall, 
they take with them the seeds of future forest. These primeval depositories of rare genetics must be safeguarded as an elixir of continued life. Two, three, and... that I have has come through weaving. As I started to weave, an elder came up to me and told me that the spruce tree is my grandpa. It made sense. It didn't make sense at first. But as I went out to harvest my roots, as I was on my knees and crawling around through the moss, I could hear my ancestors. I could hear my grandmas. I could hear my grandpas. I could hear them all talking. And then the trees told me, we knew all your ancestors, not just your grandma from the generation ago. We knew all of them. So I asked about them, and they told me about it. Does it make sense? Yeah. You know, it's so infuriating to me. I couldn't hold my tongue at this meeting the other day with these bureaucrats saying, oh, we'll cut the forest and it'll grow back. It's a renewable resource. The new forest is just the same as the old forest. You know, I'd be curious to ask you, what is lost when these forests are cut? What's the difference? Well, in order to be even for example, where I get my spruce roots, it has to be an open area with a lot of moss. No blueberry bushes, no ferns, nothing, just moss. It just doesn't happen that way. It takes hundreds of years of trees falling to make that canopy it's a canopy that we get. I'm glad I remembered the scientific word. <laughs> so we get that canopy. So when we get a new tree that comes back, it comes back with all these ferns, with blueberry bushes, everything else. There's no old trees to fall down to help create a canopy. We will never have our canopies again. 
and the canopies are valuable for my spruce roots. So I could weave baskets. It's really central for my basket weaving. My dad talked to me about when I got roots. And the first thing he said was that they send messages to each other through their roots, their root system. And he told me not to bother these roots that look like a whole bunch of hair around it, just to leave it alone. And so he kept giving me instructions after instructions, and when he's going through that process, it's best to just listen. <laughs> and so after he got through talking, I finally said, I have one question. He says, what's that? I said, why do I need to leave that root alone with all that hair around it? I've seen roots like that. He said, well, that's all the other trees around there that's sending its medicine to it because it got sick. And so you have to let it heal. Okay, that does make sense. When was that? How long ago was that? Mm, about the 80s. 80s. Wow. Mm -hmm. That was before science even realized what this looked oh, like. Oh, I think they, they have so much to learn. They, I wish my dad could have been here too. He's a walking encyclopedia. He, his favorite thing to tell everybody is, we're part of the ecosystem. <laughs> what Kasayaga's father was describing was what Western science calls the mycorrhizal network the fungal superhighway running under our feet, linking together virtually all plants and trees in a forest. When the first science report described this wood-wide web in 1997, it was one of the most paradigm-shattering and consequential discoveries in the history of ecology, and is still a burgeoning area of research. That Kasayage had long grasped this very specific knowledge of the mycorrhizal network distributing nutrients and information throughout the forest, was really not that surprising to me. Western science is only recently catching up to the oral teachings of Clinkett and many other indigenous societies. And hopefully, this vindication will impart some humility within the ivory towers. Clear-cut logging would never be conscionable in light of this understanding. Overfishing would be impossible with the sensitivities of honorable stewardship. Even harvesting berries and collecting roots for weaving would always be done with a fullness of understanding and spiritual knowing of the forest. Kasayage, beaming while drifting through memories of her father, reminded me that we need this earthly knowledge firsthand to thrive. The first time that we ended up in Huna, there was a galloping glacier that destroyed the whole community in a lot of area. They sent some men around to watch the weather and decide where we were going to move. And the weathermen came back and they said, Huna, da-da-da-da-da-da, and it meant protected from the north wind. But we always continued to go back to Glacier Bay because it's our home. We have smokehouses there. We had dwellings there. We never buried our people. We cremated. 
And so, you know, there's no uh, remnants of bones like they like to look at. Glacier Bay, in my dad's time, became a national park. And well, he was continuing to go up there and hunt his seal and get their mountain goat and fish. There was never a boundary. There was no lines for my dad. And so they continued to work in their smokehouses, but through time with the National Park, they were met with guns and told to stay off the land. And when he'd go get seagull eggs, they'd say, well, uh, Mr. Hanlon, we're going to have to arrest you. And he'd say, put the handcuffs on. I'm going to feed my kids. There was a few people who said, we're going to continue to hunt. We're going to continue to gather food. We're going to keep on going. These National Park people came in and had a meeting with our elders and laid out a map and said, show me where your high usage areas are. And so they start marking in, this is where we get our seal, this is where we get our seagull eggs, this is where we get our mountain goat, and all the areas that were marked became wilderness. We were not allowed to go there. They told us we can't come there anymore. My dad called it the last phenomenon of squeezing us out of Glacier Bay. And you know who kept that park so nice for them? Thank you. We've been the caretakers, we've been the one that preserved this land the way it is. I had interviewed um, somebody from the Sitka tribe. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting because he was telling me about subsistence in a sense that, well, one, and I'm just going to go through a couple things that I've learned so that you could tell me if these things are true and what your thoughts are. Indigenous, native subsistence, and rural subsistence are in the same block. Native people don't get a better chance at subsistence. The other thing he had mentioned was the sports fishermen. They get priority because they pay a lot. And so again, subsistence gets... Less than 1%. Less, well, less than 1%. The laws around subsistence are getting stricter and stricter. He said, you know, before one person could go out for a few families and they could collect many buckets, let's say, of you know, shellfish at a time. And they might be collecting for their auntie and their uncle and their family. And they would collect it all at one time and they would, that's how they would fill their freezers. And also the locations are changing. So somebody has to maybe be in a boat for 45 minutes with all that gas that's very expensive. And they can only get one bucket at a time. Subsistence is not prioritized, yeah. especially with native people. Well, I'm just getting pieces. We're the criminals. We're always in the court. In the courts, we lose, 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 lose. Nothing has ever been given to us. So here we go to court. We're always watched. We're always watched. Taking how much they're taking, but this, they're taking that. Um, maybe he shouldn't um, make a few dollars for gas. This guy's going to court pretty soon on the 8th in uh, Sitka because he made some money for gas.
And they're saying you can't do that with subsistence. Well, where do you draw the line? The other frustrating part is every time I go into the airport, there's boxes and boxes and boxes and boxes of fish on a daily basis sent out of Alaska by the tourist. If I could only have one of those boxes in my freezer, I'd be set for the winter. What are they doing with our fish? It's more than the fish. It's also spiritual. Indigenous sovereignty isn't really a threat. It's more like having a say on our food, not having a state trooper fly to or our communities to arrest our men like that for our food. Sovereignty is not excluding people. Sovereignty is very inclusive. So I don't think anybody should feel threatened by us having a say. The state and the federal laws and rules that they push on us. We know it's not fair. And we're living in a time right now, I mean, you know, it's like a, a cuss word to say Trump anymore. Um, but we are in perilous times. And as an indigenous woman, I have never felt so bad. because of who we are and what we stand for. strict law was raven did not marry raven, eagle did not marry eagle. And one time I came home from school, I was really sad, I was being bullied that day. And my dad was trying to encourage me and one thing I really remember him saying was, lift your chin up girl. I want to tell you something. Your mom and I are raven and eagle. Her mom and dad, my mom and dad, the generations before. All the way back to the beginning. You have no reason to hang your head. You go out there and you hold your head up high. I'll never forget that. And one of the things we do is we have this Gusuya E song, it's calling out. They call you out. And all everything that we do is through the mom. 
everything is acknowledged through the mom. And so when they do that calling out song, that's one time that you're, you get to acknowledge your dad. And so my dad is Eagle Shark, Wushkitan. And so when they say Wushkitan um, Yetki, I make sure that I come out and really dance because I'm letting everybody know that my dad is Wushkitan, proud of him. I love that balance. I love that balance. And I love the fact that we pass everything, including our clan, through the mom. Everybody knows who their mom is. So my mom is Raven Dog Salmon. I'm Raven Dog Salmon. I go to the senior center for lunch. It's our social time. And um, last week, this young man came in, and each one of them had a bag of ground deer meat to offer us. It made them feel really good to let's let's keep this going. We have a young dance group. They're on beat, and they know what to do. They do all the calling out, they do everything. So, you know, yeah, we're strong, we're strong. Mm -hmm. There's a few things that make it easy for us to live and breathe. While I was en route to the Tongass several years prior, a tire blew out on my old Dodge sending the rig flying off a steep embankment. And after gyrating in the air, it landed upside down, pancaking my camper. The vintage Avion was built of riveted aluminum, like an airplane, and it tasted flight in its final moment. My dogs and I squeezed out of a smashed window to find ourselves in what had been the top of a maple tree. When its thick limbs gave out, they cushioned our fall and surely saved our lives. And since that moment, my devotion to trees has taken on a kind of direct indebtedness. When Kasayake shared the story that follows, her covenant with the forest became so crystalline and palpable that it fused with my own. She was on a flight from Juneau to Huna. The pilot had just been transferred from Portland and had never flown Alaskan skies. Despite the fog that morning, Kasayage could tell they were off course. She wasn't going to Huna anymore. She was going like towards excursion, towards the mainland. But it was real foggy and I thought, oh, she must know what she's doing. And then I heard the lady beside me go, ah! and then I looked up just as the wind hit a tree and we were coming towards a tree and that propellers hit it, 
and that tree fell down just like a weed eater. And then it hit the second tree, and that tree fell down like a weed eater too. And I saw the third tree come in, and I don't remember anything after that. When I was in the plane accident, there was a moment that I became conscious for a while. And there was a spruce tree sticking out of a cliff. And I was in that little part of the plane that was sitting and that tree was holding me up. Don't ever forget that your grandpa is the spruce tree. <laughs> Thank you, grandpa. I came to again, I was on the ground, I don't remember. My arm was broken, this one was stuck and my legs were stuck, I don't know. I was way broken and I knew I was in shock. You know there's something horrendously wrong with you but you don't feel it. I heard people getting rescued. Then all of a sudden it was quiet. Hello? Hello? <laughs> Hello? No answer. Oh my gosh. They left me here. Is anybody here? Am I by myself? Hello? And the way it turned out, I found out later, was that the only way they could access us was lowering people and all the equipment from a helicopter. They couldn't come up from the beach. I thought about the plane, a symbolic pinnacle of human ingenuity and command, falling out of a clouded sky. I thought of the machine's dismembered aluminum skeleton Inca Sayaga still alive, held in the arms of her ancestors. And so they rescued three of the people. The pilot died. And I started to panic. Oh, God, I just don't want to go through this. What, what am I? Sick. Dad. Sick means daughter. My dad was gone for seven years. He started talking to me. I always knew you listened to me. He told me not to cry because automatically when you're by your dad. Daddy! <laughs> I wanted to cry. And he told me it wasn't a good idea. I had 13 broken ribs, so I guess it wasn't a good idea. But what he left with me, he says, you're going to be hitting brick walls. And I want you to remember, don't ever forget, mind over matter. So <laughs> it stuck with me when I hit those brick walls, it was mind over matter.
he stayed with me and talked with me for a while and then I after a while he says oh sick I gotta go and then I heard them yelling Ernestine Ernestine can you hear me they were coming back to get me and apparently they had to cut me out but I also wonder if they just kind of thought I wasn't gonna make it because <laughs> I was really really broken everything said I shouldn't have made it and I really believe I am a resilient woman and I give credit to our land we get our strength from the land the water and the air and that was the other thought was I kept thinking about my little Ernestine mm. The resilience that I see that comes through the generation, what my mom had to put up with, what my dad had to put up with, with these changes, as we had to live in these two worlds. The resilience that comes with it. But we're breaking down. Our bodies starting to break down because the earth isn't healthy, our bodies aren't healthy either. Kasayage later told how survivors on the ground had built a fire to signal to the planes zigzagging overhead in search of the crash. She laughed at the thought of being saved by smoke signals, in the age of GPS technology no less. To find something to smile about, a bit of peace in the quirky ironies of clashing worlds, speaks to a resilience of spirit anchored in an ancient forest floor. As Kasayakeh warned, to destroy the Tongass is a direct assault on her people. With a rush of clarity, these words bring into focus the urgency of an inclusive political and conservation strategy. Protecting the Tongass will require sustained resistance through advocacy and action, with a sacred network of symbiotic life and indigenous stewardship at the center, which means funding, which means seeding power and building strong alliances from the ground up to unite a defense. Like the cycle of the dog salmon that swims back up the creek, it's time for the young generation to step up and take the weight off the elders. You let me speak my soul. Thank you. Um, not much people understand what I'm saying especially when the trees talk to me. <laughs> but I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged. I know that I could look back on my life and say, yeah, good things happened. And good things will continue to happen. And I'm going to feel good about my granddaughter growing up. I'll put her I'll put her in your hands. Thank you. She's real precious. She's real smart too, of course. <laughs> Thank you. Each of us in our own unique way must continue on while remembering to reach back, listen, touch the ground return home, and offer gifts at the feet of our great teachers, 
as Kasayage has offered us such unfiltered sincerity. As we go forward, a big part of the deep listening that we are calling into our movements is about undoing our savior mentality. As we stretch into creative new realms of resistance and daring acts of land defense, our collective rising will be anchored in conscious web weaving and allyship, or not at all. We must move together, separating and rejoining like a braided river, constantly revising our course, strengthening relationships with indigenous leaders like Kasayake, with long-standing activists in the region, with each other and the communities of the forest and sea. The most immediate action step you can take at this time to protect the primordial heart of the temperate rainforest is to submit a thoughtful public comment to the Forest Service to keep roadless rule in place. We urge you to make a public comment today by visiting our website at forthewild.world or click on the details tab of this episode. The deadline for submitting a public comment is December 17, 2019 at midnight Alaska time. What prayers do you wish to release into the river of reciprocity? What can you give of your resources, your gifts, your spirit, your brilliance, to this moment of unraveling and becoming? We request that you support indigenous stewards of the Tongass by making a direct donation to Kasayage for many years of activist work, public service, and ongoing community organizing in Huna and beyond. Please visit our website at forthewild.world or click on the details tab of this episode to make a donation. Lastly, please follow and reach out to long-standing groups in the region, such as Sitka Conservation Society, Southeast Alaska Conservation Council, Last Stands, Lynn Canal Conservation, Audubon, Alaska, and Earth Justice. Dive deeper into this listening journey on our website, where you'll find behind-the-scenes cuts, bonus content, and our short mythopoetic film, When Old Growth Ends. Tune in at forthewild.world slash when old growth ends. Early in the morning Long before I see your eyes When I rise Thank you for listening to For the Wild Podcast in the Field Edition. I'm Ayana Young. The music you heard today was the Crow Nation blues man, Carrie Morin, Teresa Anderson, Purafe, Kermit Ruffins, and Leah Thomas. I'd like to thank our wonderful podcast production team, Aiden McRae, Carter Lou McElroy, Erica Ekram, Aaron Wise, Francesca Glassbell, Hannah Wilton, March Young, Molly Lebov, Melanie Younger, and Vera Lummy. For me, baby, I gotta run. Guess I don't.